Welcome to the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast, podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and the Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. Today, we're talking about functional medicine with Jill Carnahan, founder and medical director of Flatiron Functional Medicine, and a world-renowned expert on this medical subspecialty based on personalized medicine focused on root causes, such as lifestyle, instead of symptoms, such as high cholesterol. Dr. Carnahan was part of the first 100-plus healthcare practitioners to be certified in functional medicine through the Institute of Functional Medicine. She is committed to educating other health professionals how to address underlying causes of illness through the principles of functional medicine. After completing her residency at the University of Illinois in Family Medicine at Methodist Medical Center, Dr. Carnahan received her medical degree from Loyola University Stritch School of Medicine in Chicago. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in Bioengineering at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Jill. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We are excited to have you here. Uh, and I think to get us started, if you could just give us a little bit of explanation of like what is functional medicine, especially for those who may be unfamiliar. Yeah, love this. And as the terms that you, I think you even mentioned in the intro, there's now personalized precision. But the truth is functional medicine is just going to the root and saying, why did this process happen? Is there anything we can do to reverse the trajectory that a patient is on? I'm conventionally trained and I feel very proud of my foundation as a great diagnostician and a great scientist. But what happens in medical school is sometimes we stop at the diagnosis and we don't ask the question why. And with functional medicine, we just get an opportunity to go a little bit deeper and look for root cause and not just stop with the diagnosis, but say, is there anything in this patient's history um, that could have caused this um, insult to the body or change in their health uh, processes or trajectory? And is there anything possible that we can do to reverse that or to modify their diet, lifestyle, nutrition, et cetera, that could change their outcome in the future? So it's really exciting in the sense that we have a lot more uh, tools that we can use to really change the health of the patient sitting in front of us. Jill, you started career in family medicine, and was there a like aha moment that at some point you just said, "All right, functional medicine, here I come." I uh, love this question because it, the truth is I grew up on a farm in central Illinois. We had a, a half acre garden, grew a lot of our own food. My mother was a nurse. And so often instead of going first to the doctor, we'd try things, you know, nutrition, supplements, diet. We tried those things ourselves. So I actually grew up in a pretty holistic, it wasn't like we were anti-medicine. I went to doctors, I went to dentists, but there was always I, the idea that our health, our, our foods that we ate, the air that we breathe, the exercise that we we got was the foundation to health versus just a drug. Um, you know, and starting with those first before we went to drugs or medicine or surgery. So I kind of had that foundation and I, I didn't really know I was a healer, but as I got into medicine, I realized I wanted to help patients live well and thrive, even if in the midst of chronic illness. And I didn't yet know the term functional medicine. So the truth is I was looking for this practice of, of looking for root cause and being more of a healer than um, just prescribing medications. And yet I didn't know what it was called. So during my residency, I heard Jeff Blatt 
Bland, who's now considered one of the fathers of functional medicine, speak about root cause medicine, about looking at the biochemistry, the physiology, and the genetics. Um, and I was enthralled. And I never looked back. I really started to pursue this. What I found with functional medicine that was different from, at the time, alternative and integrative medicine was knowing alternative medicine or integrative medicine. You might know a massage therapist or a chiropractor or an acupuncture or a naturopath that could provide additional services through referral for your patients. And that's all well and good. But I wanted to know what could I do in the clinic with a patient that could actually change their life or trajectory to illness. And that's when I found functional medicine to be one of those um, uh, solutions for that. Yes. And I, I understand that you have quite the story to tell us on your own path. So you're a 15-year survivor of breast cancer and Crohn's disease. Can you tell us about your story and how that shapes your interaction with patients? Yes. And you're right. It totally changed my trajectory. And now I, I think maybe the bio is, is getting a little old because it's almost 20 years I've, I've been free of that. So when I was 25, in the midst of my third year of medical school, I was doing my surgical rotation and we learned about breast cancer, breast exams. And I think I reached over to my left breast and lo and behold, there was a little thickening. I did not think much of it. I was 25 after all, and we kind of think we're invincible in our 20s. But I went ahead and pursued uh, ultrasound and mammogram and the conventional route to make sure it was okay. I really did not think it was anything serious. But what happened was within two weeks, I got a call from the surgeon after the biopsy and found out I had a very aggressive form of ductal carcinoma or breast cancer. And my chances at 25 are, you know, the chances of winning the lottery, I think is around one in 250,000. So it was a very unusual circumstance. Now, unfortunately, more and more young women are being diagnosed, but it's a very different disease in young women than in older women because it's much more aggressive and much more life-threatening. The survival odds are worse. So all of a sudden, in the midst of my medical training, I faced a life-threatening diagnosis and I had to decide what to do. I was you know, placed in a program to do um, all the conventional, very, very aggressive three-drug chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. And I chose to have all the conventional treatment. I, I completely believe in that conventional medicine, and I never regretted that. But what I also did alongside was learn how to eat better, um, change my diet, lifestyle. I had prayer meditation. I had all kinds of other things in that um, realm. And about nine months later, I was considered in remission from breast cancer. You would think that would be the end of the story and I'd move on, but just six months after my complete finish of the treatment, I was back in medical school. I had taken a leave of absence. I started having cyclical fevers and I was doing my ER rotation. I don't think I even told anyone I was working and I wasn't feeling well. And I started to lose weight. I had abdominal uh, pain and bleeding and I ended up in the ER one night with an abscess and the surgeon next morning said, Jill, you have Crohn's disease. And many of your listeners probably know, but Crohn's is an autoimmune disease where the body attacks the gut lining. So just a few months later after cancer, I, I developed Crohn's disease. Now, I remember sitting with my gastroenterologist and he said, Jill, Crohn's is incurable. You're likely going to have this the rest of your life. Um, you're going to need surgery probably to resect part of the colon at some point in your life. You're going to need steroids and immune modulating drugs to control your symptoms and you know, get used to it. It's lifelong. And I, I, before I left, I asked him one question. I said, you know, doc, I want to do whatever I can. Does diet, is there any diet I could do to help my Crohn's disease? And he did not pause or skip a beat. He said, Jill, diet has nothing to do with this. <laughs> and, and you're laughing because I did, I like, I was so ignorant of that. I mean, I was just a third year medical student. I just started clinical rotations and I didn't know the answer. I didn't know that you might, diet might have something to do with it. But intuitively in my soul level, I said, I thought that can't be true. 
So I went on a mission to prove him wrong and I found some dietary changes and I actually ended up in that moment 20 years ago on the specific carbohydrate diet by Elaine Gottschall. And literally within two weeks, my fevers, my symptoms were gone. I was not cured in two weeks. It took me several years of really altering and treating my microbiome and my immune system. But today, 20 years later, I haven't had symptoms or any signs of the disease in 19 years, literally. And I consider myself completely cured from Crohn's disease. That's such a powerful story. And I think... Uh, unfortunately, that's a very common story. We hear this of a lot of people going in and having conversations with their doctors about disease, be they autoimmune or chronic, and either not being told anything about what they can do with diet or nutrition or lifestyle, or being flat out told that, no, that's not going to help. But I think we all on this podcast know that that's not the case at all. Yeah, absolutely. And again, now, I mean, I've just been working on my book and I'm writing a chapter about the Crohn's disease. And when I look at the literature, so first of all, one of the underlying root causes, this makes a lot of sense. And I know your listeners will find this. It's like the detective story behind why did I get cancer and Crohn's? So I grew up on a farm, lots of toxic chemicals that are endocrine disruptors. So that means they act like hormone-like effects on the body, things like atrazine and other organophosphates, probably in our well water. So all of our water supply was from a well on the farm. And, and there's runoff and contamination often in those wells. And um, I had very poor detox genetics. So I had um, SNPs related to glutathione and other detox pathways that were impaired. So I always say it's like our detox system is like the a bucket analogy and it's our bucket's ability to hold the level of toxins. And once that bucket fills up with toxic load and we start to spill over the top, often we develop cancer or autoimmunity or neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. MS, et cetera. That's real common. So I think my bucket filled up very early. I probably even had in utero exposures for my mother because as you well know, cancer at 25, those cells were probably starting to divide and do bad things back when I was five or 10 years old, like maybe even a decade before the cancer. So the farm, you know, those exposures, my poor detox genetics, and then unbeknownst to me, I had um, undiagnosed celiac disease. And at 14 years old, I went from a typical meat and potatoes diet on the farm to a vegetarian diet. Now I look back at 14, I didn't really know much about um, that. And I think I had low zinc, so I had a lack of taste for meat and I had hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid. So it's kind of no wonder to me that at 14, meat didn't feel good on my body when I ate it. So I decided to forego it. But instead of really understanding what you needed to do to get a healthy vegetarian diet, I mostly became a carbitarian. And because I had undiagnosed celiac, I had a lot of gluten in my diet. So this was contributing for maybe a decade from 14 to 25 to inflammation of my immune system, which probably weakened me also to lead to the cancer and then to the Crohn's disease. Now with Crohn's, I also have a gene called NOD2. This is a higher risk for um, abnormal immune reaction to a normal microbiome. So it definitely predisposes someone to Crohn's disease. And because my diet was high in gluten and high in carbs, that did not help anything. Now, a third thing that's fascinating to me is one of the drugs I had for chemotherapy called cytoxin 
um, actually part of its mechanism of action, this is in the literature, is poking holes in the gut and creating an immune response. That's also called intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut. So my drugs for cancer were actually creating more permeability in the gut. And then, of course, with my predisposition to Crohn's, that just allowed in this lipopolysaccharide coating of bacteria to trigger a pretty massive inflammatory immune response. And it's no wonder to me that I developed Crohn's disease a short six months after I finished treatment. Jill, I I love the bucket comparison. I I think I probably heard you giving a lecture about this 10 plus years ago because I used the same analogy and I was trying to remember where did I pick up this little way of communicating with patients? It must be you because this is exactly what I'm using. Uh, So thanks for that. You know, I I always get bombarded at the university level from critics saying, ah, you know, functional medicine, all you guys do just give vitamins and there's really no science behind it. But, you know, there's there's, uh, um, thousands of articles. I know Jeff compiled uh, in his uh, Bible of 30,000 plus references. But what is sort of your favorite way of thinking about evidence-based functional medicine? Mm, I love this question because um, like you, I came out of an allopathic training and I I have great respect for that and all of my colleagues who still practice conventional medicine. Um, And for me, it was, we always have these great randomized controlled trials, but there's there's still the N of one, the one person in front of you. And so say, for example, in SSRI, the number needed to treat is 10 for one patient to improve. Well, what about those other nine patients that aren't improving and we're using an intervention based on a number needed to treat of 10 or seven or whatever? I like to think of it as that person in front of me doesn't fit the mold uh, of, of one randomized controlled trial. And these randomized controlled trials, while they're very helpful to get information for us on drugs, they're designed for a one-to-one intervention. And many times in these complex systems or complex, even with diseases, there's so many variables that it does not fit neatly into those randomized controlled t- trials. And so it's hard to extrapolate from those to treat that one patient in front of us with uh, thousands of variables, right? So this, this I think, alludes better to the complexity of the real patient that's sitting in front of us. And um, what we can still use is cutting-edge evidence, some of it randomized controlled trials, but some of it other types of evidence. And I always think about risk versus harm. So say vitamin C, uh, whether it's oral vitamin C or IV, the risk of that is very low. And the benefit may or may not be huge in the studies, but if the risk is extremely low, I'm much more likely to try it with a patient's permission because I know that I'm not going to do any harm and I might do some good. And usually when we're on that edge of that box, when we're trying new things, a lot of times things take 20, 30 years to become standard of care. So if we're waiting 20 or 30 years, we are way behind the eight ball, especially as you guys, I'm sure have seen with the pandemic and post COVID and all the things we're seeing, things are exponentially increasing in complexity. And if, I don't know if you're seeing in clinic, but I sure am. The level of toxicity, the level of complexity, the level of autoimmunity, the level of symptoms in the average patient is exponentially increasing. And if we stay with the old model and don't think outside the box, we're not going to be able to help these patients. Um, one last thing, and I'll, I'll be quiet for a moment. Um, the whole thing of leaky gut and hyperpermeability, I wanted to mention this earlier, but 20 years ago, that was very controversial in the literature. And as I was researching and writing my book, there was 
is now a lot of good evidence that links it to Crohn's and colitis and other intestinal conditions, and it's in the literature. So now it's becoming more common than it was 20 years ago. Um, so again, 20 years ago, I was pushing the envelope, and now I think the data is substantiating that that permeability absolutely can lead to autoimmunity. Yeah, and that's the the wonderful thing about the literature is it does evolve, but uh, we don't always want to wait for it to evolve. So I think that's a, an important point is let's try and do as much we can that is still evidence-based and that, you know, it's evidence-informed, but low risk. The other thing I, is, you know, you're talking about the evidence evolving is we've basically discovered a whole new organ in the gut microbiome, right? So we didn't really understand the mechanism behind this, but now that we're starting to learn about the gut microbiome, a lot of these things make a lot more sense mechanistically. You're like, oh, it's affecting the gut microbiome, which is affecting the gut. And time and time again, what you see is diet, nutrition being really paramount for the gut microbiome. So how could we expect to heal the gut or any disease related to the gut without having some component looking at nutrition? Yes. And I love that you're saying this because this is one of my biggest ahas. Because I started with Crohn's and cancer, I quickly became kind of a gut expert because that was an area where I really felt like I understood and knew and I lived a lot of it myself. And I used myself as a, you know, a specimen like (laughs) to try to experiment, but it worked in a lot of ways. And now the data we know in LPS endotoxemia, which LPS is lipopolysaccharide. It's the coating of the bacteria in our gut. When that sneaks across the gut barrier into the bloodstream, it creates a very potent inflammatory cytokine immune response. And this is literature. If you look at the literature, it is like thousands of studies related to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, insomnia, depression, anxiety, etc. So now we see the metabolic diseases connected to the gut. We see mood disorders, sleep disorders connected to the gut. And it all starts to make sense. And even COVID, you probably saw more than ever before with a new disease model, lots of literature connecting some of the manifestations to the gut microbiome. Same thing with drugs. We're now finding things like metformin and other types of medications that some of their mechanisms are being um, now targeted to the gut. And we're finding out, oh, we thought this worked all along this way, but now we're finding out perhaps a bigger mechanism of action is through the gut microbiome. So diet, nutrition, lifestyle. What what other components of lifestyle do you see as playing a really important role of functional medicine? Yeah, I think the elephant in the room is environmental toxic load. So back to that bucket, um, because what's happening is the rate of chemicals being released into our environment without proper testing, or maybe some testing, but they're not being tested in synergy with combinations of other chemicals. For example, some of these uh, organophosphates and endocrine disruptors I talked about growing up on the farm, they actually have a hormetic effect at incredibly low levels. So the traditional toxicology literature talks about a certain toxic dose, but they may be at, at ten, you know, I don't know, tens or thousands of, of levels lower than the toxicology dose having a hormetic effect. And sometimes these hormetic effects have a synergistic effect when combined with other chemicals. So we're in this massive lab experiment as we're releasing chemicals in the environment. Just last week, I read um, some articles in our paper about PFAOs, which are, you know, Teflon, and they're called forever chemicals because they are not broken down. And they're found now here in Colorado, where I live in the water supply and pretty much everywhere that water supplied. So things like that are not going to go away, and we have to figure out how can our bodies deal with this toxic load. So back to your original question, what do we do? I think we have to think about clean inputs, and it goes back to real basic principles, clean air, clean water, clean food. 
And what can we do to preserve those sources of clean air, clean water, clean food, and actually do the things? We can get very complex protocols and nutritional supplements, but none of that really matters if we're drinking dirty water that's contaminated with pesticides or if we're breathing air. Um, Walter Crenian once quoted that 80% of our environmental toxic load is from the air that we breathe and how many patients have air filters in their home or in their office or in their car. So these really basic things can make a big difference, and that's even before we start a simple supplement regimen. Yeah, recently we had the first um, case of of death from environmental exposures um, in in the UK. This a, a young girl died from exposure to toxic air, and that's probably only going to get worse if we don't do something to reverse the air. Uh, what are some actionable items that people can do to to start working on that? Other than you know just buying clean things, but what can they do in their environment every day? Yeah, so this is great because practical is where it's at. So clean air, um, air filtration nowadays is almost a must. And there's a couple uh, components. A HEPA filtration system will get out the particulate. That's like, you know, mold spores or things that are fragments in the air, um, usually larger particulate. Um, and you can get in either in your furnace or a standalone filter, a higher MERV rating or a higher rating as far as how much particulate that will filter. But that's really not enough. You actually need a VOC, volatile organic compound filter to filter out the things like formaldehyde or particulate matter that's less than 2.5, which would be your viruses, et cetera, or even mycotoxins from mold. So I recommend a type of, I actually have standalone air filters that you could do probably in your furnace as well, um, the filtration system that would have HEPA filtration and also VOC filters. That's key. And nowadays, again, especially I'm in Colorado and California, Colorado, a lot of the states around me have had wildfires and they're only increasing. And the kinds of toxins that are released by those fires are, are just shocking. It's really, really affecting air quality. And so we need to really have, start to have filtration in our homes and the places where we work. That's air. Clean water would be getting a filtration system, either a whole house filter or a standalone countertop or fridge filter. And you want to be sure that your filter will filter out these very small particulate, again, the viruses, the E. coli, but also the toxins like heavy metals and arsenic, et cetera. Um, So that's really key. And making sure that you're not drinking out of plastic water bottles, which contain BPA, which are also endocrine disruptors. Um, And even I think really plastic in general, there's these newer versions that are not BPA. I really think plastic in general is a problem. So I'm not so sure that the newer versions are any safer of bisphenols. Um, then we the, just don't know what's in yes. them or how it's going to affect us yet. Exactly. Exactly. And I think there could be just, just like Teflon and, and uh, Gore-Tex, which is the, the PFAOs in our environment that are forever chemicals. You know, those are great for when you're hiking in the rain or when you're cooking eggs and it doesn't stick to the skillet. We thought these were, you know, incredible scientific advances until we found they stay in our environment forever and they have a profound effect on the human body. And then clean food. And this is hard too, but our dollars, you know, will help the farmers and the people that do grow organically. So I I say whenever you can choose organic, local, um, in season, um, and try to avoid the really toxic things like farm salmon and uh, other fish with mercury. I mean, there's a lot of things to do with food supply, but the best that you can either grow your own, get it locally, um, buy in season, try to buy organic. Um, Environmental Working Group every year puts out the Dirty Dozen, which are the top 12 contaminated foods with toxins. And so at the very least, you could spend your money organic on those foods. And those things really do make a difference. Jill, I love that your answer was actually very complicated. Because yeah. I think we, we always want to sort of 
you know, simplify every treatment regimen, right? I mean, that's our de facto. We think that patients would prefer something simplified, but this is not a topic you can simplify. I mean, and and it's going to get a lot worse very quickly. It's not just the environmental issue of the fact that, that, that there's a global warming up going on. I think we're just, just what you said. I mean, there's an increased amount of pollutants going into environment, getting to us, and we have to increasingly be more and more aware. And um, I hope you uh, continue pushing this topic up because otherwise, uh, as you said, we're going to see a rapid increase in complexity of presenting complaints because of the all of the toxic load. Yeah, I, and I love that you say that because a couple of things come to mind. First of all, um, you can no longer do a 21-day detox in January and think you're okay for the year, <laughs> right? Um, I always laugh at that because it's like you need to practice. Like every day, I, I, I use Epsom salt baths. I do infrared sauna once a week. I eat clean, organic whenever possible. I have air filters at home and work. Like I practice these things, and it takes time and money and energy to actually day to day be proactive for my health and and put these things into place. It can be almost overwhelming, but we really have to take charge. The second thing you mentioned is global warming and being involved. I am the least political person you could ever find. I stay away from that, but I find that I must be involved because our health and the health of our patients is at risk if we aren't, you know, being spokespersons for the medical um, outcomes of environmental toxicity. I think that's important for us to get involved to whatever level you're comfortable with because it's going to get worse and not better unless we take an active role. And then third thing is what I see as a complexity is I think functional medicine at, at the root is pretty simple. Most of the complex chronic cases that I see are some combination of environmental toxic load an infectious burden. So I really think even the pandemic that we just went through in part was contributed by the toxic load weakening immune systems and causing more and more people to get ill. And so that combination, even if we're seeing infections, is influenced by the toxicity, which weights down our immune system. Fascinating. So there's obviously more coming down the pipeline in terms of research. We're always looking for the the latest and greatest thing. Wondering, wondering what you're excited about. What are you looking forward to in terms of research? Yeah, so, you know, um, I did mention I'm writing my book. It'll come out in February of next year, so stay, stay tuned. And what I, I was going to write on just environmental toxic load, the same stuff we're talking about here. But what I realized is... Um, it's boring unless there's story of patients or whatever. And I happen to have a lot of story of what I've been through myself. So it revolves around a lot of my own health journey and experiences because it talks about cancer and autoimmunity and mold toxicity. And then I talk about patient stories, but all that to say, um, I'm excited because I thought originally I was going to write about environmental toxicity and how this affects the immune system. And what I learned in my own journey was that's one huge part of the issue. But we also have to look at relational toxicity, childhood trauma, emotional health, and uh, just the mind-body component. And I think I get most excited because personally, I've seen some big transformations when I look at those old thought patterns, old trauma patterns. And again, it may sound kind of woo-woo, but the truth is there's more and more science behind those kinds of things and how it affects our health and immune system. And I think they're equally important to look at and to study as the, you know, lead in our paint or as the contamination in our water or food supply. Well, you are absolutely preaching to the choir on that with our whole person care approach. And then we have the new resiliency and well-being center at, at GW and wow. uh, mind-body interventions is a big part of what we do, right? we got to recharge and, and, and let some of that stress go because we carry it around with us and it does become quite toxic, quite literally toxic if we carry it around. And so 
learning to let go, even though it, that sounds in principle quite simple, uh, can be difficult. And I'm, I hope that it becomes something that's more standard. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And again, my patients and myself, I've seen some of the most profound changes in dealing with those old toxic patterns or those stress habits or those all of those things. They really are probably more of the toxic load than even the chemicals that we breathe in the air. Yeah, absolutely. And we bring them upon ourselves often, right? We, we live in a high stress world and we make choices that make ourselves more stressed and don't give ourselves the time to de-stress. Yeah, there's a phrase that might stick with your listeners. I just love it. I literally will write this on a prescription pad. It's be kind to yourself. And some of that, that self-compassion is where that can start, like your healing can start when you start being kind to yourself. Mm, Yes, that's a great take home. And I think even the best of us need to be reminded now and again of that because we can get very easily caught up in the, you know, you're on the speaking tour, you're writing a book, we're uh, working with students, you get caught up in the day to day and you forget about the the importance of just little things like that, giving yourself a moment um, to, to have a mental health break or um, to go for a walk in nature, right? Just give yourself what it needs. So true. I, I literally, in my again, I, these are from my own work with myself. And in my my cabinet, medicine cabinet in the morning, I open that up. There's a little sticky note that says, what does she need from you today? And that's just a reminder, uh, like making sure that, again, whether it's go out in nature, if I'm sitting eight hours a day, I need to get up and walk. And But it reminds me to check in with myself. I'm like, what do, what do you need from me today? And take care of that part, because only then can we go out into the world and help people learn and thrive and heal. Absolutely. And that's a great message for uh, healthcare professionals uh, worldwide, because we are probably the the worst at, at doing that. We are great at giving, but we aren't good at refilling that cup so we can give more. Yeah, I think you're spe- absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Jill. You're so welcome. Jill, we'll have to have you come back after the book is out in February. Oh, I'd love that. Yes, let's do. I would love that. Thank you. Great. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. Thanks for listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.